Well, good morning. It is good to see you today. It is good to be back. Um, I wanted to take a moment and thank our church family for the generous gift to me and to my family. Uh, It was excessive and gracious, and it is such a joy and privilege to serve as the pastor here at Redeemer Community Church. Uh, We're so thankful for our church family. Uh, I pray um, that you are faithfully served um, as you so faithfully serve us. Well, today's text is probably the hardest text in all of First and Second Samuel. Uh, most other evils addressed in Scripture pale in comparison to the evil we're speaking of here. Uh, the text shocks us and makes it clear that not all is right and good in Israel. David engaged in deep sin that we saw in our text a few weeks ago. Now David's son goes far beyond David's evil. Uh, Today we read the narrative of David's son committing rape. Uh, This evil is one that is deeply personal and relevant to our own culture today. Uh, We live in a culture where sexual assault and abuse and rape are as common, perhaps, as they've ever been in any culture in history. Uh, One out of every five American women has been the victim of rape in her lifetime. One in three experiences other forms of sexual assault. One in four girls and one in 13 boys will experience sexual abuse in childhood in the United States. Sexual assault and abuse and rape are prevalent in our culture today. And part of the tragedy is that the vast majority of victims never receive justice. Their abusers are rarely caught and even more rarely punished for their crimes. And so there are many who can relate to the narrative we're going to read today. Uh, If you personally are a victim of sexual assault or rape, or if you know someone personally who is a victim, uh, we grieve with you in the evil that has been done. Uh, And if you still need help dealing with that trauma, we would be glad to meet with you and encourage you in the Lord. Uh, One hope that we have as we deal with tragedies like this is that we know that God will one day judge. Criminals may escape justice on earth, but they won't escape justice for eternity. No crime goes ultimately unpunished. And so when justice eludes us on earth, we can look in hope to God's perfect justice. Uh, We're in 2 Samuel 13 and 14 today. It will help if you turn along in your own Bible. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 264. It's about 20% of the way through your Bible, page 264. Uh, 2 Samuel is the 10th book of the Bible. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, and as you continue, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then First and Second Samuel. Uh, let's pray, and then we will look at our text together. <clears throat> God, our Father, we confess that we are sinners, that apart from your grace and mercy, we are far from you, that we seek after evil in our hearts, and we oppose you. And so we praise you that in your grace and mercy, 
You sent your own son to earth for us to live the perfect life that we could not live and to die the death that we deserve to die. We praise you that Jesus paid for sin on the cross so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be reconciled to you, adopted as your sons and daughters, given citizenship in your eternal kingdom. And we praise you that we can gather together this morning as a church family. We thank you for the visitors that you've brought us today. And Father, we ask that you would help us uh, to truly worship you this morning, that you would be exalted and lifted up. Father, I pray as I address a challenging text that you would help me to teach faithfully and truly. Uh, We ask that you would convict us of sin, and we ask that you would give comfort and encouragement and hope to those who desperately need it. We thank you that your word is true and that it speaks to us today. That thousands of years after these events, uh, you can still use even the evil actions of men to accomplish your good purpose. Father, we praise you that Jesus was worthy, that that he never sinned in these ways or any others, and so he was uh, qualified to be our substitute. Father, as we uh, approach an election uh, with a divided nation, we we pray uh, for a peaceful election and peace afterwards and for unity among our nation. We pray for peace and unity in our church. As uh, the coronavirus pandemic continues and there continues to be strong disagreements about how best to deal with it, uh, both in the political sense and in the personal sense, again, we ask for wisdom. uh, We ask for peace and unity. And Lord, we ask that you you would grant healing, uh, that, that this would pass, and that as our lives return perhaps more to normal, Uh, that we would be reminded uh, that normal is not particularly important, uh, but eternity is important, and seeking after your kingdom is important. And may this time remind us of how precious your gifts are to us, and how precious our salvation is. Father, your church, your people are gathered around the globe across this day. Uh, We praise you for it. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray especially for those churches that are suffering persecution or about to suffer persecution because they claim the name of Jesus. We ask that you would strengthen them and be with them. Father, we ask that the name of Jesus would be proclaimed powerfully throughout your church, that you would open hearts to the gospel and you would convict of sin you would grant new life and salvation. Father, we ask for that throughout the church around the world, and we ask for that here in our own church. Soften our hearts. Lord, help us to see our own sin and our desperate need for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. There are really three tragic events in today's narrative. Uh, First, we have rape. And then that leads to murder. And then the final chapter of today's text reveals that neither, uh, neither person who committed these crimes receives justice. 
So the first tragic event is rape. We read about this in 2 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. I'm not going to break down every verse, but before we go farther, I just want to explain these people in slightly more detail. Uh, back in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, we learned about David's sons. So sons, this is first, 2 Samuel 3, verse 2, sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Chileab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Mekah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. So Amnon is David's firstborn son. That makes him the next in line to the throne. His mom is Ahinoam of Jezreel. David's second son is Chileab. Uh, the only time Chileab is mentioned in scripture is in the list of David's sons. Uh, it's thought that he probably died in childhood, and that's why we don't hear anything more of him. Absalom is David's third son. Absalom's mom is Mekah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. Tamar is Absalom's sister, so also the child of Mekah. Uh, that means that Tamar is the half-sister of Amnon. They have different moms, so they may not have grown up together, but David is their dad. So Tamar and Amnon are half-brother and sister. So back to the chapter, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. After a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Verse 2, and Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, Say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Verse seven, then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother, when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where should I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, 
Please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. In verse 1, it says that Amnon loved Tamar. Uh, Love is used here in the broadest sense of the meaning of desire for another person. Uh, We see very quickly that Amnon does not love Tamar according to any biblical requirement of love. Love is affection that works for the good of another. And if what you call love is not active at work in the good of the person you claim to love, it isn't really love. Uh, Amnon quite clearly does not love Tamar in any real sense of love. The text is very clear about that. Now, Amnon does have very strong feelings of attraction for her. However, Amnon has a problem. Actually, Amnon has a lot of problems, but the problem with his love for Tamar is that she is his half-sister, and that doesn't bother him. What bothers him is that he cannot reasonably satisfy his sexual desire with his half-sister. She has saved herself for marriage, so she is a virgin, and Amnon sees no way he can satisfy his passion with her. Well, enter Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah. Shemaiah is David's brother, so that makes him, um, makes Jonadab the cousin of Amnon, which means Jonadab is also the cousin of Tamar. And Jonadab is crafty. He knows how to make things happen. Uh, he knows how to make people respond the way that you want. And so Amnon says, pretend you're sick. It's clear he's already somewhat sick from depression. Just just make it a little worse, like you can't get out of your bed. Your father will come see you. Ask him to send Tamar to you. Have her cook for you and serve you food and eat the food from her hand. Amnon carries out this plot. He asks David for Tamar to come. Amnon sends everyone out, and then Amnon carries out one of the most vile and wicked crimes a person can commit. He demands that Tamar have a sexual relationship with him. Tamar rebukes Amnon. She reminds him that his action would make him like one of the evil fools. 
and that his action would bring her undying shame. His proposal is evil, it is unlawful, it is shameful. And when Tamar refuses his advances, Amnon overpowers her and rapes her. As soon as Amnon's evil is complete, his love turns to hate. The text says now he hates her even more than he loved her. He immediately casts her out. Before he cast everyone else out except her, now he casts her out of his house. So Amnon is walking deeper down a path of evil. It's hard to put into words the depth of evil that Amnon has committed to take something so personal from someone, to demand by force what God has designed to be given only as a gift in love, in marriage, to abuse another person so personally and intimately. Tamar's brother Absalom seeks to comfort her and provide for her. But the one thing that's not coming for Tamar is justice. King David was very angry about Amnon's evil, very angry, but not quite angry enough to do anything about it. Now, if this had been a consensual event, Amnon could have potentially paid a fine and married Tamar. Uh, But of course, there was no consent. Amnon has acted alone in evil. Tamar is his half-sister. The penalty for this crime was death. Death is an appropriate penalty because it's consistent with the crime that's committed. That would have brought justice for Tamar. But Tamar will not receive justice because as has become a pattern, David fails to act for justice when his own family is the guilty party. Maybe David will get around to dealing with this case someday, but he just doesn't have time for it right now. Justice is delayed. Well, again, if you are personally a victim of sexual violence or know someone who is, you can probably relate to Tamar. I think every one of us just has an immediate reaction of compassion for her. Delayed justice, denied justice are common to sexual violence. And if you or someone you know is a victim, we pray that you'll receive justice. And we know that one day, in the ultimate sense, you will receive justice. We pray that God would comfort you with the comfort that only God could give. And we look forward to the day when God promises he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. When there will be no mourning, no crying, no pain anymore. For the former things will have passed away. Well, it's easy to look at Amnon and to hate him and what he's done. But we have to examine our own hearts. Perhaps we have people here in our church who are actually guilty of a crime like this. It is a prevalent sin in our culture. And if this is your sin, God calls you to repent. But it's easy to say, well, I've never done anything like that, but to excuse other sexual sin or other sin in general. Right? This is the sort of sin people say, well, I've never murdered anyone. I've never raped anyone. I'm not that bad. 
right? But we have to examine the ways we have sinned. And God calls us to repent of our sin, to turn from it, to confess it, to confess it to our victims. And we know that in Christ Jesus, all sin can be forgiven. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, today's text begins with tragedy. Amnon rapes Tamar. Uh, We follow with another tragedy, which is murder. Justice is delayed for Tamar, and so her brother Absalom plots murder in response. Uh, Look, if you would, at verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Verse 30, while they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. Verse 34, But Absalom fled... And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Absalom is angry and rightfully so. Amnon has done evil against Absalom's sister, evil worthy of death. It is right for, Am- for Absalom to be angry. It would have been right for him to appeal to his father for justice. Right? King David at any time could have done the right thing and punished Amnon for his sin. And so Absalom could have appealed to him and appealed again and appealed again. 
Uh, we find of Absalom that he can be very convincing when he really wants to. Absalom is a leader. He inspires others to follow. But the narrative says nothing about Absalom asking his father to carry out justice. Instead, after two years, after perhaps people think this is past, Absalom asks David to join him at a feast that goes along with shearing sheep. Uh, David declines, but that's actually what Absalom was counting on all along. So now Absalom asked David to at least let the rest of the family come since David's not going to come, Amnon specifically. And now David, feeling bad for declining, uh, decides he ought to send his sons to go celebrate with Absalom. The narrative jumps straight from Absalom's invitation to his command to his men to murder Amnon. Strike Amnon, kill him, have no fear, this is my command, act with courage and valor. And just as quick as Absalom commands the murder, his men carry it out, and Amnon is dead. It's all over so quickly. Then David's other sons flee, and the way the plot and the murder all happen so quickly, it kind of pushes our focus beyond the event to the fallout afterward. Uh, Mixed reports make their way to David. Uh, First, he hears that all of his sons are dead, and, and he and his people weep, and then He hears a second report that only Amnon is dead, which is better than the first report, but still terrible news. Uh, His firstborn, Amnon, his heir, is dead. His second son has presumably been dead for some years, and his third son is now first in line for the throne. Uh, He's the one who murdered the heir. So so now what does David do? I think... If we're honest, we can tend to side with Absalom here. Amnon has done evil. Justice was not carried out. Absalom has carried out justice. And it is true that Amnon has received the just deserts of his evil. But that doesn't mean that justice has been done. Absalom has taken justice into his own hands. Absalom has decided to carry out vigilante justice frontier justice, mob justice. But we know that mob justice and vigilante justice are not really justice. We have very dark periods of our own national history that remind us that vigilante justice and mob justice are evil. And so while it's true that what Amnon received was just for him, Absalom had absolutely no right to seek it on his own. Absalom's kind of vigilante justice will never bring true justice. But again, I think if we're honest, we understand what Absalom was thinking, what he was going through. And while, as far as I know, no one here has ever murdered anyone in the physical sense, uh, it is true that we have all murdered people in our hearts. Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you have murdered him in your hearts. And so our hearts know the kind of desire that Absalom went through to destroy those who would dare oppose us. Well, ironically, now that Absalom carries out vigilante justice, we find that he is likewise going to be exempted from being punished. Once again, we see justice delayed. 
Uh, This time, it's only partially David's fault that justice is delayed. Absalom flees the country. He goes to Geshur after he murders Amnon. And we're probably thinking, why Geshur? Uh, Well, remember King Talmai of Geshur is uh, is Amnon's, excuse me, Absalom's grandfather. Uh, That was 2 Samuel 3.3. Absalom is the son of Mekah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. For King Talmai, uh, of course, he's going to take the side of his grandson, Absalom, who has avenged his granddaughter, Tamar. From their family's perspective, justice has been done. That's not a complete perspective because, again, vigilante justice, mob justice is not justice. But we can understand how their family would have felt. But with Absalom out of the country, David does not bring justice against him. Amnon's murder goes unpunished. And so once again, we find justice delayed. As our text continues, we find that justice delayed is justice denied. In our narrative, justice is denied forever. No justice is brought by the government against the rapist or the murderer. Look with me at chapter 14. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, save me, O king. And the king said to her, what is your trouble? She answered, alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. Verse 7, And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Verse 8, then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Verse 12, then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now, I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of the Lord." 
And your servant thought, the word of my Lord, the king will set me at rest. For my Lord, the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord, your God be with you. Well, the first 11 verses are a parable of sorts, much like uh, when Nathan told David the story about the poor man's sheep. And as with that other story, the storyteller is trying to cause David to consider a situation that does not feel personal. It does not sound to David like he's making a judgment about himself or his own family. And when David or David's family is not part of the picture, uh, David has a pretty good sense of justice. You may remember the summary of David's reign from the end of chapter 8. David administered justice and equity to all his people. Right? David, David is a just king overall. Uh, most of the time, David is, unjust, is just. It's only some of the time he's unjust. And that some of the time seems to largely focus on his own family. Well, this parable will help David have a different perspective. Uh, not the right perspective, but a different one. In the lady's story, her two sons fought what looks to be a fair fight out in the field. Tragically, one son killed the other. And now the rest of the family wants vengeance. They want to execute the son who killed his brother. But the second son is her only son remaining, the family heir. So the family will have no heir if he is killed. And David recognizes in this, this is not a situation that justifies the death of the second Son. And so he promises to ensure life for this son. In verses 12 through 17, the woman brings the parable home. King David, you're the guilty one. Uh, you have banished your own son, your own heir. God provides ways to end banishment, so your son doesn't have to be an outcast. Uh, you seem to be content with him being banished forever, but that shouldn't be the case. And then she kind of ends up with various flatteries to wrap up her lesson. Uh, continuing in verse 18, the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let the Lord, let my Lord, the king speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my Lord, the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my Lord, the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of the things your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, behold, now I grant this, go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, the king in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said to him, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Verse 25, now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it when it was heavy on him. Um, he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. 
So Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. In verse 18, David hears the voice of Joab coming from this woman's tale. Uh, Joab put you up to this, didn't he? And so she admits Joab is the one behind the story. Uh, it doesn't appear David cares that Joab's behind it. He just wanted to know. But in verse 21 and following, David approves for Absalom to be brought back. Uh, but Absalom is still not going to be allowed into David's presence. So there's no justice for Absalom. He's not going to pay for his crime. Uh, but David isn't going to welcome him either. So it's kind of this uncomfortable peace. Verse 25 through 27 seem to be a sudden intrusion into the narrative. Uh, they don't fit naturally with the rest of the story. Uh, Absalom is incredibly good looking, the best looking man in the nation. Um, but what the, these verses are doing is foreshadowing. Uh, I'm not sure if you remember the other key figures who have been described specifically for their looks. Uh, King Saul, tallest man in Israel, David's oldest brother, Eliab, Samuel, looked at him and thought he looked like the next king. And so perhaps we're having some foreshadowing that Absalom is going to fall in that sort of line. Well, just as suddenly as we read about Absalom's good looks, uh, we just go right on in the narrative uh, back to the situation at hand. Uh, Absalom spends two years in Jerusalem and never sees David during that time. He tries to get Joab to come out and help him, but Joab won't come. And so Absalom does the logical thing and sets Joab's field on fire. Uh, so finally, Joab shows up and he's like, hey, what's up with that? And Absalom says, right, I need you to deliver a message for me to the king. I'm tired of being here, but not being able to see the king. So go talk to the king for me. Tell the king, either I want to see him or he can put me to death. And basically, Absalom is calling David's bluff. David is treating Absalom as half guilty. Uh, not so guilty that he can't come back into Israel, but guilty enough that David won't speak to him in person. So finally, Absalom is allowed into David's presence. David kisses him, which is a sign of royal favor. It's now been five years that David and Absalom have been apart. Uh, three years in Geshur and then two more years in Jerusalem separated. But now Absalom is back in his father's presence. But again, there's been no justice for Absalom's act of murder. No true punishment of any kind. It's just kind of gone away, almost forgotten. Justice was delayed and then finally justice was simply denied. 
to acts of evil, both punishable by death, by members of David's family, against David's family, both overlooked. Justice is denied. The question for us is, is why is this story included in Scripture? Why this narrative of rape and murder and injustice? Why not just share a couple more chapters about David defeating his enemies, a couple more stories of David's heroism, maybe a deeper explanation of his more common pursuits of justice? Right? After all, from what we know of David, this sort of event is not common. David usually did better. So why not just leave out this rather embarrassing narrative for David's line? And you know, Scripture doesn't include every event that it could. Uh, there were certainly many events in David's life that we don't know about. Some amazing and powerful, others tragic and terrible. But God chose these stories that would be included. So, so why this narrative? And I'll be clear, I'm not claiming to know the mind of God in this. I'm not, this isn't like the absolute reason. But two basic explanations ring true. First, this narrative is included in Scripture because God's Word does not whitewash the lives of the people involved because it's real history. Scripture reveals to us that all people sin from the least to the greatest. And Scripture is very transparent about the sins of the heroes of the faith. Uh, If you're examining Christianity, trying to determine what is true, I would commend you to consider how the Bible handles history. Historically, most nations record their own history in rather glowing terms. The kings were amazing, the warriors were victorious, the politicians were noble. Isn't that a dream? Uh, you, You don't discover national embarrassments in the approved history books, right? You have to read outside sources to find these things. But in Scripture we find this thread that the most important people's flaws are laid out for us to see. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, the judges, Saul, and David, the kings after David. Uh, We read about various sins for all of them. Uh, In the New Testament, uh, Jesus' disciple Peter uh, sins in very public ways. We have sins and follies recorded for all these people. People in Scripture are recorded as they really are, warts and all. Again, because Scripture is sharing true history. And so we have this story as part of David's history. And we're supposed to see ourselves in this too. We fall in this line of people who failed to be righteous. We fall in a long line of sinners. But we also, what we also have in this narrative is a demonstration that we need a better king. God's people need a better king. First, God's people needed a king. That's how judges ended. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then in 1 Samuel, we saw King Saul. and He became king, and everyone still did what was right in their own eyes, and Saul did what was right in his own eyes. And then we come to David. And David is a better king. He's a man after God's own heart. He reigned in justice and righteousness. David expanded the nation. He defeated God's enemies. He led God's people to follow God. But not all the time. David was still a sinner. 
David sometimes took what did not belong to him. Among David's sins were his many wives, his adultery. And David's sins contributed directly to the sin that we see today. Uh, Additionally, David's failure to bring justice against his own family is another sin that contributed to the sins we see today. And so as great as David was as king, and all the other kings are compared to David, David still wasn't good enough. God's people still needed a better king. We need to recognize that we need a better king. We need a king who is truly righteous all the time, every time. We need a king who could conquer sin. And the reader of the book of Samuel will recognize the best king in Israel still couldn't save. He couldn't truly deliver. And so we need a better king than David. We need the king promised in 2 Samuel 7, the king who would reign forever, the king who would always do what is right and true, a king who would always reign in justice and righteousness. And so when we read through the Old Testament and we arrive in the New Testament, Jesus was not this surprise revelation that came out of nowhere. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the scriptures were pointing to. Jesus is the one who truly was good, the one who always acted in righteousness. Jesus isn't tacked on at the end. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the pictures and types and shadows, all the prophecies and promises. Jesus is the purpose that everything has been moving towards. And to text, text, excuse me, texts, single syllable word, it's not that hard. Texts, like today's text, are a reminder that no one was good enough, not even the greatest king, except Jesus. And Jesus did not become king through sword and conquest. Jesus became king by laying down his life for his people. Jesus died so that our sins could be forgiven. Jesus died so that we could be redeemed. Jesus died so that we could be adopted into his family, granted citizenship in his kingdom. And one day, one glorious day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're given the tragedy of today's text to point us beyond that king to the greater king, King Jesus. Let's pray to him. God, our Father, again, this is a challenging passage. I'm sure for some it brings uh, challenging memories, deep pain and suffering. Father, we look forward to the day when you'll wipe away every tear from our eye, when sickness and sin and sorrow will be no more. Father, we confess that while these specific sins may not be our sins, that we have many sins that we do claim. And we ask you would help us to see our own sin and to turn from it and to see the glory of Jesus, the true King, the true righteous one, the one who's perfect and flawless and holy in every way. May we worship him. In Jesus' name, amen.